You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Today we're sharing excerpts from an event at the Archive in July, a conversation between David Gorin and Joan Martinez. The event was presented in relation to our summer exhibition, Resistance Radio, The People's Airwaves, which looked at the history of radio as a medium for grassroots movements. David Gorin is the creator of the Brooklyn Pirate Radio sound map, and he's been researching New York's pirate radio scene for the past five years. In this talk, David explored the cultural and political forces driving underground radio in New York via live tuning, archival recordings, and excerpts from his BBC radio documentary. David's guest, Joan Martinez, is a filmmaker, a broadcaster, and an avid listener to the Creole language pirates of Flatbush. Whenever I've met a pirate broadcaster, they're like, tell me how I can be legal. I'm like, well, do you have $300 million or, you know, so... I don't know what the answer is, but it's, it's in an alternate universe, an FCC, you know, when I recognize there's two sides of the story, but to my mind, the FCC should be like, oh my God, this is like the most incredible use of radio, hyper-local broadcasting to a community. Otherwise, it's a highly corporate endeavor. There's not a lot of variety. So now um, I'm going to ask Joan to come up. This is uh, Joan Martinez. She was in John Anderson's class, and I think one day John was talking about pirate radio, and Joan was like, hey, I, I think I want one of those spaces. <laughs> <laughs> so first I'm going to play a clip, and when, after the clip we can, we can talk. And thanks so much for coming tonight. And Joan, it was a, a, a central part of my documentary. So here is a part that I called... Um, the listeners in something, I don't remember. <laughs> the listeners in the street. Have you listened to radio from home here? Yeah, man, yeah, man. What do you hear? Right here in New York City, you have a thousand Caribbean stations. from the regular stuff that you get every day, even though it's illegal. <laughs> yeah, it's not. I mean, it's still there. My name is John Luke. I listen to some radio because it's a sense to know exactly where you are, and that's why I'm telling you Flatbush when I'm listening to the radio station. I'm trying to get the music from the environment where I live, which is basically getting back to me with the Asian, the Trinidad and the Jamaican. So I got it. Yo, yo, one book read me to your walls and mix. Now put it like you and you Dr. Reverend Thomas, radio is still wonderful. Start 
listening to the radio, you draw your own picture. You hold it faster than, when well, you're done playing back. Okay, the TV will show me. See, whereas, if you do it from the radio, there's so much things you can imagine. There's so many things you can put together. Vous écoutez la voix du peuple. Vous écoutez la voix du peuple. These underground unlicensed or pirate stations have been around for as long as there's been radio. I came across it at a very young age. I was probably like maybe three, four, or five years old. And there was this really popular station back in the late 80s called Madrugina. And it was based in Brooklyn. Nobody knows where it was. There are suspicions. But all I know is from Friday night all the way to Sunday night, you would just hear a series of these stations every weekend. And it would be the place where you could listen to the latest in Haitian pop music, Haitian rap music. It was also news. Like my parents and their friends would all sit around the radio and they would just be politicking in the living room, getting really loud, dancing, singing along, that sort of thing. It was just like a meeting ground and the radio was guiding it. Well put. <laughs> <laughs> so um, before we start talking, of those four listeners we heard, they, they each listened in a different way. The first guy, Angel Lopez, a Dominican, he liked to listen to the Haitian stations playing compa because it was reminded him of like an older merengue style. The second guy, uh, Jean-Luc, um, he liked to hear the music he was familiar with. He was with St. Lucian. He was not aware that these stations were anything but a normal station. He was like, but they, how could that be? It sounds like a normal station. The third guy who said radio is still wonderful, <laughs> He had never heard of the notion of a pirate radio station, and he was a, a minister. Uh, but after talking to him, he revealed that he had a show on a station run by Christ, Christian Temple. Um, and then, uh, Joan, you grew up listening in your family. It was. Um, it was just like it was just a meeting spot. You know, it was one of those things that it was just always on throughout the week. You know, you'd have the television going, and there would be the news and everything. But then Friday starts to roll around, and then, you know, all of a sudden the radio comes on, and all of a sudden you have all this music that you hadn't been listening to all week. And it was kind of nice because um, I do remember, like, my grandmother sending my parents kind of like cassettes of like all the latest music because you weren't able to really get them here. And, you know, that's usually like months at a time. So the radio kind of filled in that gap. And, you know, I just remember, you know, it'd be like Saturday morning and all of a sudden, like, there's like one group, there's like one shift of friends coming in and they're like listening and then they're talking and then they're really loud. The men would go off and help my dad with his car or my dad would help with his car. Then they would, be, then they would leave and then there was the second shift of friends and they were the women and they would get my, their hair done with my mom and they would be politicking and just gossiping. It was just the whole house would just be filled with conversation and the radio would always be that. There would always be like some breaking news. Sometimes it's as simple as um, maybe there's a protest, you know, and my mom would be like, oh my God, that's like two blocks away from our house in Haiti. Oh my God. And then they would listen and sometimes that's the first place you would get information. Um, it would take us a while to like get in touch with family to figure out what's going on, to get the nuts and bolts, but usually 
the radio would be like the first thing that they would listen to. It would be the one that would provide literally the breaking news of that time period because you weren't really going to hear about it in the regular outlets. You weren't going to hear about it on the other stations across the dial and you certainly wasn't going to hear about it on television unless it was a coup or something. And even then, you know, it's like glossed over. At least when it was the station playing it, there's actual detail, there's man on the street, there's actual analysis. Um, I remember at some point there were actually, my aunt who is a, she's now a filmmaker, but back then she was a budding um, music video director in Haiti and she was there sometimes and she would just be filming like what's going on in the street and then they would call her in and that's how she got one of her first gigs as a TV journalist over in Haiti. So, you know, it was just always those, it was just always those stations that would be the literal lifeline back to the island. That's very true. And in fact, uh, there was a day where uh, Joan and I met up and there were, earlier in the day, I had been out in the community. I was just going to put, this is about a two minute clip. And I was fortunate to have, to have met Joan and make a few other pirate contacts. Most, most, they're on Facebook, they put out their numbers, they're on posters, but a lot of them don't return your calls. So one day I was out, Joan and I, were, we were going to meet up and listen through the dial together, and we did. But earlier, I was just standing on the Rogers Avenue at recording, and this happened. First, first we'll hear the ID of the station. My name is Joseph. Everybody call me Haitian. Because I'm a pure Haitian. One thing I am interested in. But the thing is this before we talk, we'd like to see your ID. Yeah? What I'm doing, I'm making a story about all the radio stations in Flatbush. And many of them actually don't have a license. Thank you. So, how important are these stations to you for getting the facts? They are very, very important in, in our communities because certain news, the main media will not give it to us and they will not care. So from those videos, this is how we get our information. The job that we're doing in this community, we know we're taking a risk, but most of the video that you see in the community is not making money. We're putting money. I'm a member of one of the radio. We putting money out. We we don't make money from the radio. Oh, so you're a member of yeah. one of the stations? Yeah. You want to tell me which one? Comedy. 90.5? Yeah. It's one of the most popular ones. What's your role with the station? Are you one of the owners? There is no owners in comedy. It's a bunch of us, a bunch of young guys. We have to do something positive for our community and for back home also. Right now, at this moment, Talk. the Marine is in Haiti to protect the interests. And behind this, we don't know what's next. We don't know what's next. CNN don't show you this. Yes or no? No, it's not in there. BBC don't show you this. So what we do, we have people in Haiti that we 
call us and tell us what's going on and we'll send us pictures. This is how we get our information and bring it to the people. So this is why that even though you get taken off the air. Because they don't want the truth to come out. But you'll go back on. I see my family over there. My mother's still there. So I have to know what's going on. So the other people have to know what's going on to their families. That's pretty much. That's the truth of it. That's the major gist of it. Because regular news outlets are not going to tell us these stories. Usually, um, like, sometimes I'll hear about a story that's going on over there. And then I'll say to myself, okay, let me verify it somewhere. So if it's not from the Miami Herald or maybe a little bit of sliver in the AP, I won't hear about it at all. I guess they have to wait for, like, the you know, you have to wait for stories to corroborate themselves, and that's perfectly fine. But sometimes also, you know, some stories take so long to get to actually the American public that by the time that it does get there, things have already gotten dire. Like, for instance, the recent, um, the recent protests that happened because of the surge in oil prices. You know, it took days. I knew about, my aunt told me about it as it was happening like from like the first throw of the rock my, my aunt got on and told me about it and then you know it took two maybe two weeks before i saw something about it on cnn and when when i was um when i met them and learned the he was a guy i was on the corner recording and he called me over and he was selling water out of a chest outside of a church where you can hear the hymns in the background and he was like, oh, are you covering, there was a hike in gasoline prices. I was like, I didn't know anything about it. And that's when I started asking my stuff and, and he told me. And I think that's another thing. You could like throw a rock and hit someone who runs a Haitian radio station in Flatbush. There's, I think I said earlier, there's like a third of the stations in Flatbush are, are Haitian. You're either gonna hit somebody that's affiliated, somebody that owns it, or somebody that's on it, or somebody that listens to it. A lot of people will say, no, I don't listen to those stations. And it's like, you kind of see that they're kind of joking. Like, because I understand why they won't tell me about it. Because, you know, one, I represent academia. Two, um, they know me in the community as a journalist. Every time um, I'm mentioned, it's always, Joanne Martinez, the beautiful Joanne Martinez, the journalist, the beacon of our community, and all this. So it's like, whenever I approach myself, there's just always like, they're always kind of quiet about it. They're too shy to talk to me. It's nice, but then it's like, I'm trying to get information out of you. Can, I just, can you just answer me this little question? But it's fine. But it's, it's interesting how, how that works out. Yeah. So how did you make the transition from being a listener, having it be part of your family, <laughs> and being a broadcaster? And, and, and one of the threads of this story is like how much of a family connection there is between the broadcasters who literally become family with the listeners. Right. I mean, here in, like, when it's like, um, so, more specifically, I wasn't really listening, but my mom was, and, you know, she, basically, you, if you call the sh if you call in, you basically become kind of like a host for, like, a few minutes, especially if you can keep the conversation going. Like, the, G the DJ will almost encourage you and ask you more questions. And then the next thing you know, it, you're, they're calling you up right after they're done with their show, and they're like, hey, you are really, really great. It's kind of like, a, it's kind of like an impromptu audition. Do you want to come in and do a show? And, you know, 
at first it was like they were asking my mom and my mom was like I don't really want to I don't really I like listening and participating but I don't want to go through the whole thing of being on a show but my daughter studied it and then they're like okay we must meet her we must find her and we must yes let's go so I just you know I just came in and I sat down and he was like all I did was just mention that I had a degree in broadcasting they're like we want you like can you start this weekend it's like okay sure mind you I had never been on the radio before I've, I've spoken into microphones you know that's like class plays and stuff like that and those first few weeks were of course really really rocky and it was like <laughs> so but then you know um, as the months have as the months went on and years went on I started to gain a small following and um, I eventually got my own show and then from there you know it's like I started to find my voice and you know for most of my life I the I'd always felt like I was supposed to be giving a voice to the voiceless but I never knew how to do it and for some strange reason pirate radio kind of do that being in being an underground broadcaster an underground personality actually did offer me that avenue to speak for those that just didn't have a voice or to obtain information from an entity from entities that just weren't supplying it and that's a great transition into this um clip um because eventually you were also aware of the other stations so in this clip joan sort of describes what happens as night comes on and and who the stations are are speaking to have like a regular radio, like a classic antenna that you have to adjust either this way or that way or a boombox or something, chances are like once the sun goes down, all of a sudden everything that was like static throughout the day, you hear music, you hear voices. Sometimes it's in Russian, sometimes it's Hebrew, sometimes it's a preacher. Talk about the power of God. Why talk about the anointing? And why talk about the Holy Ghost? When you have the Holy Ghost, you can't go through stuff like that. Sometimes it's Haitian, Spanish, Jamaican, West Indian, it doesn't matter. It's just like this whole spectrum. And there's just something so cozy about that. You know, because you feel like when you're on the other end of the spectrum, it's like, yeah, this is so American, and this is so popular, and yay. But then you go into that other side, and it's like, ooh, another perspective. Oh, people are talking. What are they talking about? When all this peace and sleepity, when the waters calm, everything on the level, everything cook and curry, you only see one side of a person, one facet of their personality, and one aspect of a situation. It's like the radio becomes like the second world, you know, and then you hear the overmodulation, you hear the DJs, you hear the Yeah, 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 yeah. And I really feel like the FCC really screwed the pooch on that, no offense, but I just feel like the intent is to kind of serve the community, and because you're not, because you're relying on corporations, it's like you're missing out like this other spectrum you're missing out on that sometimes you want to hear a voice on the radio 
One Chinese station in Flushing. So that's sort of the flavor. The, there's a lot of immigration attorneys who come on the air yeah. and give free advice and sell their services as well. And the, the Haitian stations do that also. Yeah. There's it's a huge, it's a huge um, it's actually, there's, you have more people that, yeah, when it comes to like, the, more or less, it's, it's as if it's more didactic. It's, it teaches more. Then it's not just, you know, listening to pump out hours on end. There's actually, um, local politicians <coughs> that have come on, you know, the, a few years ago, people were running for office um, for the city council. They were coming on and they were telling you um, how they're going to fight for their community, how they grew up in the community, you know. You can, and you actually can call them up and ask them questions and actually have a debate right then and there. You, know? you don't get that in the mainstream. Um, Funny you were thinking, um, you taught when you were listening to that montage, I thought about my cobbler on Avenue D who fixes my shoes, he's Russian. And sometimes like I can hear him listening to Russian stations. I'm like, what station is that? And he's like, it's one of those stations over there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, don't worry about it. And I'm like, I, it's okay. I, I, don't, I don't really care. I just thought it was interesting. I was like, what are they talking about? Don't worry what they're talking about. I was like, okay, all right, fine to you your secret so it's one of those really and the fact that it's like when you can hear like that oh, that buzz and that over modulation it's kind of like when people say they love the sound of vinyl and the warmth of it so it's it, it's like that same effect it's just something about it that it, it, it's comforting and if you're comfortable you'll pay attention and if you'll pay attention you'll invite more people to pay attention and that's all what it's about. I mean, and also you also have to think about the fact that you know, like when immigrants first come to the country, it's a scary experience. It's a new place. You don't really know anything. You don't really know any anyone. And sometimes it's that radio is like, oh, a station where I can listen to, and it's it's in my language, and I can figure out what's going home, what's going on at home, and I can also you know learn a little bit about what's it like here in the U.S. And, it's it's a nice little um, it's a nice little bridge, you know, between the island or the country, your motherland, and the United States. 
So in these communities, uh, some people say, and when I interviewed Rosemary Harold of the FCC, she's like, I don't understand why those communities, why they don't just stream, you know, which is kind of an interesting position for the FCC to take, you know, why do you not be on the radio? And they do, they stream. I mean, I think it's, there was, I think our reporters left, but there was an article in The Verge about five years ago, and they concluded that these stations are on the air because the, uh, most of the stations are not streaming, but now I, almost all of them are. They're on, there's a thing called Audio Now where you can call a number on the phone. Yeah. Um, but why are they still on the radio? Because if they just stayed to um, the streaming services, they would avoid potential problems. They would avoid potential problems, but then you also have to think about radio as it's the most passive of all the mediums. You know, you just turn it on and then you let it go. And it just, it does everything to you. You don't have to do anything to it, except, you know, turn the volume up or down. And, you know, some people don't want to go through, it's also, you have to ask, not everybody is tech savvy enough. Like me, you, we all can go on audio. We can all dial the number. We can all go on tuning. We can all go on these services. That's because we grew up in that technology. For somebody that didn't, or they just don't want to, you know, sometimes it's just easier to just hit the button and then just let the radio happen. But I understand where she's coming from when she says, why don't they just stream? And actually they do. And a big reason as to why they started streaming was so that they can avoid, you know, this whole thing. It's like sometimes they want to switch away from the analog. There are times where sometimes the transmitter is getting a little wonky. There are times where the sig somebody's interfering on the signal and they resign to just go and just stream for a while. And sometimes the stream allows them to just stream all day. So that, that's also the benefit of it. Sometimes it's like they just can be able to just play content all day, every day. Does it impact the listenership? Because the, the station owners I've talked to are like, well, it's for the poor and the elderly in the community who, who they can't afford to, to subscribe, to, you know, to buy a phone. Um, well, so like when you, in cases of audio now, I mean, sometimes that eats up the phone battery. When you, you're basically right. making a phone call and you're listening, you know, you, gotta, you have to get phone calls at some point in the day, sometimes right. that interrupts it. Also, um, you know, the poor, like people that don't, lower income people may not be able to afford a streaming service. Not all of them have, you know, some of them have what they call dumb phones. The phone is only, you know, it has a little bit of memory. It's not as elaborate as, say, my Samsung or your iPhone. You know, sometimes it's, exactly, exactly. Sometimes that's sufficient for them because they don't have that kind of lifestyle. And, you know, when you're talking to somebody that's elderly, the elderly, like, you know, summer stuff. They say that, they say that older people are, can grasp technology because they want to be whatever's in and now, and that's perfectly fine. But others are still like, you know, very cantankerous and they'll say, just give me my radio and then they'll just hit the button. And you have to respect that too. You have to honor that. Right. And I have a short clip from um, Dr. jean Eddy St. Paul, who's the, do you know him? He's the uh, director of the Haitian Studies uh, CUNY. They're based at Brooklyn. So he talked, and, and I, after that, I'm going to play a clip to to where you talk class. about the last generation, and then maybe we can open I into questions. Try to get into his class, and I couldn't. Really, <laughs> but he talks about the other. There's a historic tie, and in Haiti, they needed. There was no independent or very little independent information, and certainly not in Creole. 
and then maybe when we're done this cut, you could talk about why creole is important. But this is talking about something called the transistor revolution. First, with a little clip. The piece in Haiti, why he's working on the plantation in his farm, you know he has a transistor. At that time we had two kinds of transistor. One was Sam and the other was we say Trident or Trident. And many people, they prefer to don't have money to buy tobacco, to smoke, but they will have money to buy the battery, you know, to put in the transistor because they want to listen what Voice of America in Creole, we say La Voix de l'Amérique, what Voix de l'Amérique have to say about the politics in Haiti. You know, I think many of those people, because remember, the first generation of migration in the U.S., your, the big migration, was during the 1960s. And many of those people, the culture of transistor was part of their everyday life. So they still maintaining the culture of transistor. For them, you know, having a radio station is very important. Does that ring true from what you know from about your family and their relation to radio when they were in Haiti in the... Yeah, like the first few weeks, it was just like them and the radio until, you know, we, you know, you have enough cash to like head over to like um, the Atres school, which was basically the, um, it was like a service you would go to and you could like, um, you know, to call long distance because long distance phone calls are expensive at the time so you know you know between that you know that radio is your guide to home like i said before um and you know you like when we were listening to that clip and it was in french you know i have had to like want to call my mom on the phone like what is this guy saying like a lot of people think like i since i speak creole i speak french automatically and it's two different languages creole is more the broken version and french is more like the elite version it's kind of like um let's say the british accent versus the american accent the, you know you have the king's english which is the elitist english and then you have the american english which is more people and <laughs> it's just the way i say it um so it's vital that you know they have their radio in the language of the elite however you know not everyone is going to understand French or they will understand a very broken version of French, which is why you have <coughs> Creole, which is which you could appeal to way more people if you speak to their if you speak their language, which is what I was discussing with you the other day about how um, Aristide got his start. Aristide and the journalist Jean Dominique got his start because they would go they would actually preach in the language of the people which means that they were able to move the people to support them and to demand more from their government and, you know, want a better life. Because, you know, some, it's, it's always, it's kind of like um, when you think about, it's like when you think about how the printing press changed history. So it's kind of like that. You know how there's like, as soon as the printing press came about, more people could read and you know, they could read the languages, and the next thing you know, it spawned an entire movement, and 
more people were able to get their access to information. If more people have access to information, movements happen. Right. All right, I'm going to play one more clip which, uh, of Joni, and then we can take some questions. Um, I have tons more audio, but we should uh, not go on all night. Radio Elegance, la reine de la voix antillaise à New York, son programme Saint-Etienne, dédié à... A lot of these stations, especially the Hasty stations, they have such an extensive music library that they will play songs, a song come on the radio. C'est fanatique, le Baptiste. And all of a sudden my mom is like, oh my god! Your grandma used to have this record, and she'd play it every Saturday, and then all of a sudden, she starts swaying, and then she'll start singing the thing word for word for word. Now she's transported back to being on the island with the big radio that's a piece of furniture in the living room, and thinking about when her friends are over, and they're having like a little house party, and their people are chatting, little drinks are flowing about, you know, my grandmother milling about in like a gorgeous dress, you know, serving people. So it's kind of like that whole nostalgic era that unfortunately was probably lost because of the whole political turmoil in Haiti. So it's kind of like hearkening back to a good time, to a simpler time, a better time, a more carefree era. So questions? Do you have any questions? <laughs> it's okay. Well, I have a question. So. So the people who run the stations, are they, are they like worried about the FCC? Are they keeping up with the law? Do they know about the Pirate Act? Why are they putting the stations on the air you know, on a practical day-to-day -day basis? They do it because they feel like they have a, ser they have a service to their community that they're serving. They, they feel like it's a duty. It's, it's a response. Like um, Sony, who was the first one that brought me into it, he told me that the microphone is a responsibility. It's not just a place to just you know, shoot the crap with somebody all day, every day, and just chat with your friends, even though that's what I, what I do on my podcasts. But it's a responsibility. You have to not only entertain, but you also have to inform. And, you know, you can't just, you know, just some do it. Some will just, like, be shock jocks, and that's perfectly fine. But others are actually there because, one, it's a passion project. Two, it's something to do. Three, you're actually just being a lifeblood to so many people. And also, you know, there is also that whole idea of celebrity behind it, you know, a little bit of ego. You want to have the best station with the best DJs, and you want to have, like, the biggest numbers, and you want to throw the biggest party and have the most people come. There's also that aspect. But more or less, it's, it's more or less you want to do this because you feel you have a duty to do it. Great. Thanks. And... Questions? Someone must have a question. Yes. You, sir. You go well, for it. Well, to run even a pirate radio station costs money. Right. So do any of these take advertising, or to use a less offensive word, underwriting, or anything like that to get some money to keep up their operation? Yes. Yeah, some yeah. of them do. Um, it's not as like liquid as say like the other side of the dial. It's not like you have these major corporations clamoring to have like a thirty second. I mean, local spot. merchants. And Very local merchants. Sometimes it's a friend that happens to own maybe um, a restaurant or a little coffee shop or um, a hairdresser that you know. You know, it's like maybe your maybe your girlfriend or your wife is a hairdresser and you give her publicity for her shop. You know that sort of thing. 
Um, a lot of these people, you know, they do work other jobs. They have side hustles, and I'm not going to talk about those side hustles, but, you know, they're blue-collar men and women. You know, they just work day-to-day, and whatever money that they, after bills and mortgage and rent, after all of that, you know, it, it's poured right into the station. Because it costs. You know, those things cost. Like, I, like I've seen how much a transmitter can go for I've seen what an antenna can cost. I've seen what, you know, sometimes when you hear, like, when a computer breaks down, it's like the worst thing that happens. When a transmitter is on the fritz, it's, it's like DEFCON 1 to them. So, you know, it's, it's a pet, it's a love, and sometimes it's a money pit, but, you know, at the end of the day, they feel like they have a responsibility, and they do it purely for the love of the job. Yeah, and that's one thing that the FCC or the radio industry will say. They're making tens of thousands of dollars. I, I don't yeah. think it's really happening. They operate at a loss. Like, I've, I've seen books. I've seen, their, I've seen some of their books. And sometimes they will honestly, like, have maybe, like, a promotional party at, like, a nightclub. And they will charge all this money for the ticket. And when you think about, you know, cost of food, beverages, like, all that cost to the venue and what they take home and put to the station it's barely even 10% to put back into the station. So they're not making the money that you think they are. These are purely passion projects. These are like people working on their thesis forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It's just like you're seeing your money fall in. And it's like, yeah, and you would love to make a profit, but to turn a profit is extremely rare if it does happen at all. Right. I spoke on another clip of uh, Joseph from Radio Comedy, he's like, I asked if I could come out of the station, and he said no. But he did say that, you know, it's a basement, they can only afford a basement. They have to give the landlord a little extra money for the, ele for the electric. Yeah. And that if something breaks down, that they pool their money yeah. to buy the, buy the new equipment. That's another issue, rent. You know, a lot of these stations are held up in people's basements. They're sometimes like, hot little rooms and like small businesses that you climb a staircase everything's all ad hoc and hidden so and you know that rent is expensive and also when you have to you know like they need internet to keep it going so you know there's always an, there's always a bill um electricity you know that bill is expensive and yes like david said sometimes you have to give the landlord a little bit of extra cash just in case something happens and, you have to really like rely on a powerful network of people to actually help you out, and they will, I guess, you know, a way to say, ride or die, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, you talked about the um, importance of having a large tweet, uh, listenership, and in an earlier montage we heard someone say they were the number one station. How did they know they were? <laughs> In their hearts, they're number one. <laughs> it's ego. It's ego. You feel like you're the number one. I feel like I'm the number one. I feel like, like let's be honest. Here's the thing. I'm the, um, for a while, I was the only girl. I was the only woman doing it. I was also the only per like a lot of people didn't people think I'm a unicorn people thought I was a unicorn like like is she given a script how can she speak Creole that well because she has her, her last name is Martinez where the hell did dad come from is she a unicorn no she's a Dominican I don't believe her it's like I don't believe her somebody dug her up out of somewhere it's, like, it's all ego it's all about ego and sometimes it's the 
it's the highest compliment you can get. You know, just saying, like, you think that's what you think, but in actuality, I can prove you wrong. Yes. So I know Christianity is an important part of a lot of Haitian stations' livelihoods, sure. but I'm curious if voodoo or other practices are involved at all in, Amer um, in American Haitian stations. Okay, let me preface this by saying voodoo is only real if you believe it's real. That's, I'll preface it by saying that. Because people, it's something I've been dealing with my whole life. Oh, you're Haitian American. Do you practice voodoo? Like, no. Is it real? Like, it's real if you believe it's real. Like, if somebody does something and then something else happens, you take it how you want. But um, that's the thing. It's like, it's always been a conflict with the Haitian community, with the voodoo and everything, because everybody runs to be Christian. And, you know, there are very few that will say, like, well, that's not necessarily our roots, you know, because if you go back into slavery, you know, it was something that was taught. It's not rooted into what the history is, because you have to think about where we come from and all that. But when it, like, I guess you can attract way more of the community by claiming Christianity and claiming voodoo, because if you claim voodoo, you know, you're, you're fine you'll find people that are interested, like me, like I'm interested in that stuff. Blame my astrological stuff. And you know, there are people that are like totally into it, and then there are people that will say like, oh my God, they're Satanists over there, and they're gonna corrupt people, and it's like, not, I mean, like I, you could say the same thing about Christianity. You could flip it around and say Christianity is going to corrupt people as well. And you could also say that another religion will do it, or another faith, or atheism will will corrupt people. So it's like it de it depends on who you are. I mean, I personally don't mind evangelism because there is a group of people that will listen to it. Sometimes I know people that actually get a kick out of that. They like to wake up one. It's a way that they could go to church without leaving the house. I'm totally down with that. Because I don't like waking up early and getting dressed for an hour, for a few hours. I don't like it. But then again, you know, somebody like me, it's like, I like it. And sometimes I'll listen to the preachers and then they'll just say something that is just so off the, off the rails. And you're just like, I can't. I, and I'm pretty sure like they turn off a lot more people than they turn on. There are. That answered your question. I think um, to an extent it definitely does. Okay. On, on some of the English Caribbean stations, the Jamaican, that there are ads in particular from like root doctors and you know, there is some of that sort of magic it, side. It exists, it exists. I mean, they do make their money. They, they, people are making their money. And, some, and it's, easy, it's the easiest way to get those people, it's not those people. It's the easiest way to get that audience because if they, if, if somebody needs it, they will seek it. And if it just happens to be like when the radio is on and that ambient sound and it hits them, then you know more power to them. Advertising. I talked to um, off the record. He didn't want to go on the record because he had just had his antenna taken down and he wanted to lay low for about six months and put it back up. This was a, a pastor of a, a Pentecostal church. And he was like, why do the reggae stations never get taken off the air, but I do? Well, it's not true, but he said, it's witchcraft. It's witchcraft, which is busting my station. And I also spoke with uh, a, a smattering of Orthodox Jewish stations in Flatbush, and there was one, J Root Radio and 95.1, 
and they, their frequency they were broadcasting on was taken over by a legal, what they call a translator station. It was like a station in New Jersey that found a legal way to come on in New York. And the owner of j said to me, we were targeted, we were targeted by Christians. They were because they didn't, they're trying to reach and convert our listeners. So there's a lot of, often that tension going on. They broadcast in Yiddish? That station did not. They uh, that station was Sephardic, so they broadcast. They broadcast mostly in English. There's a the the sole remaining station, Kol HaShalom, is for the Sephardic community, and they broadcast in Hebrew. There's not really a Jewish broadcaster at the moment. I mean, there's you know the, some of the words, some of the lingo, but it, it's more primarily Hebrew. Yeah. I don't know very much about community radio, but I find all this fascinating and grateful for putting this on. Um, I think back when Clinton was president, he um, arranged so that there could be more low power stations, and it was a pretty it, important change. It happened in that era, yeah. And I wonder if you compare that platform to the platform of um, unlicensed stations, and maybe one has turned out to be more viable and more certain than the other. No wonder. If you have any thoughts on that, why that might be? Well, the, well, LPFM was introduced by the FCC as an answer to the the activity um, of pirates in the '90s, um, but it was opposed by the National Association of Broadcasters and also NPR, and they created rules that kept. LPFM out of the top 50 markets. So it was only in rural, rural areas that you could have um, LPFM. So in the cities, and this scene is also, there's a similar scene in Miami, lots of patient stations, and in Boston. Probably so, more. where else? Probably more. Pro Probably more in Miami than up here. Yeah, yeah, I think there are. So, so I think that's what happened is the, the, these broadcasters in the cities could not get LPFM. Either it was being held up and not offered. Finally, in 2012, um, under Obama, there was the Community Radio Act, which was approved. Um, and the, now there are 2,000 LPFM stations. But I think, as I said earlier, in New York, there's just one opening per, bor per borough. And in Queens, there's a Chinese station. And I don't know, there's not much else on. In New Jersey, there's a lot more. like. 40 miles south, there's a Hindu LPFM station. So, and when Petri Dish was talking about this, because he, he spoke at the Microcaster um, event a couple weeks ago, and he ran a station called Radio Mutiny, a pirate station, and they were famously busted by the FCC, where the FCC, they were, there was no DJ there at the time. The FCC came in, and I, it was like the head enforcement guy got on the mic and said, we're shutting this station down. Um, he then Radio Mutiny decided to take the money they had and start Prometheus, which was an advocacy group for low power FM. And eventually, Prometheus was able to get um, more coverage. So now there's about 3,000. There may never be another window for LPFM. So um, that's why these stations are still in the air, in my opinion. Does that answer your question? Yeah. What about DC? Are you familiar? There's a huge Ethiopian community in D.C. Do they have either an LPFM or a pirate station? Well, they don't have pirate stations. And there's some uh, also at that 
uh, event. Is that online? Is that available for people to listen to? Because there was um, uh, four or five members of a station called CPR, which um, they oh, they were here a couple of weeks ago, and they they were never caught, and they were on for like almost twenty years. Um, there weren't too many in D.C. I, I'm still trying to find out why some communities have it and some don't. Like there have been Russian pirates, but there are not too many now that I'm aware of anyway. But I don't, you know, that's the thing. I can tell this story, but if I was in a different area or a different area, it would be it would be a different a different story. So when, when the FCC tries to shut down the station, what, they come with their jackets and say FCC on the back? Well, it's a very bureaucratic process. It, it rarely gets to that. There's, and this is what the Pirate Act is trying to change. They're, they're trying to get these steps erased. But now, here's what happens. You get something called the NUOU, the Notice of Unauthorized Operation, where they write you, you know, they've, they've gotten a complaint and they've gone out and they've triangulated the signal, they've come up with an address and maybe they found a name. So like, dear so-and-so, we understand you're broadcasting on 89.7. If you have a license for this frequency, please send it in. This amuses me greatly because <laughs> they know they don't. And, um, yeah, <laughs> and so if if you get that notice in your concern and go off the air, there's no penalty to you. That's what they're trying to do. If they continue to broadcast, then there's the NAL, the Notice of Assessed Liability, where they say, "Hey, we noticed you're still on the air. You didn't send us your license, so we, you owe us ten thousand uh, dollars." They usually never pay, do they? You know, the things get negotiated down. If they had ten thousand dollars, <laughs> don't you think they would have like pulled all their resources together and just buy a license by then? Well, they need millions of dollars for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then after that, then there's the raid. But the the raids they happen, but very rarely because, for one thing, the police department, you know, the FCC. If they make a raid, they usually want to have law enforcement with with them. And in New York City, law enforcement is not interested in doing this. It's a low priority for them. Uh, there's a station that I feature in my piece. I call them Radio Activista. It's a pseudonym. On their Facebook page, they are posing with the police. The police they, they don't. The police are not even aware it's a it's an illegal radio station. So what the Pirate Act is trying. Well, the U.S. Marshals are not interested either, but they're try the the FCC under Trump has made it a new mission, and what they're trying to do with the Pirate Act is they're trying to get more money to make the Justice Department interested. And last like, I heard, right? Was it like they only have five agents for the entire Northeast, and they just got like a sixth guy? Something like that. I, I've heard that nationwide it's under fifty, and in New York City I think it's two. Basically. Enforcement has been cut and cut and cut and cut. So the impression I get, and when I also when I interviewed Rosemary Harold, um, they had tried a new tactic in Miami with a, a station called Tushan Deuce, which means something like smooth move. Part of my Creole, yeah. Tushan, <laughs> um, where where they find the people who were hosting the uh, the transmitter and antenna. They find them one hundred fifty thousand dollars. And that station is still on the air, too. And I don't know if they've collected. 
And not to be, not to narc or anything. Sometimes what happens is like I think they're more or less looking for the transmitter rather than the apparatus. So basically, I can have a transmitter like maybe over there, but um, I the studio could just be somewhere else on the other side of the car. That's usually the case. That's yeah. usually the case. Sure. But they, this was a new tactic to like, let's make the landlords upset. Now a lot of landlords they may not know that something is on their property, you know. So. Does the SEC currently have any type of operation in New York? I know many, many years ago, uh, uh, Greenwich and Christopher, there was an SEC office. Uh, people worked at. I don't know if it's there, but it's still they. They still, they have, still have a New York office. They do. And I know it's not there anymore, but I don't know. If yeah, well, that the guy I talked about earlier, Judah Monsbach, who was the real go-getter agent in the '80s, he worked out of that office. Alexander Zimney was another agent at that time. So, from what I understand, and there's some pirate activity in Allentown, PA. There's uh, Latino stations, and so what I've heard recently is that the New York office has loaned two agents to the Philadelphia area. So they kind of move around. But, you know, one, one guy, like a ham radio guy, got wind of my documentary, and he said, I sent your documentary to the two FCC agents in Allentown. I'm like, okay, I hope they enjoy it. <laughs> I, I don't think it's gonna lead them to the door, you know. So there's still, you know, an attitude from a lot of people that it's wrong and it should not be happening. Anyone else? Well, thanks for coming. Thank you, Joan. Thank you. It's so great to have you. Thank you, David. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. We're planning our programming for next year, and we'd love to hear from you about what you want to hear more of. There's a survey you can take at interferencearchive.org survey. And if you'd like to support our work, please visit our website and click on Donate. Thanks for listening.